I'd like to have you turn to Joel chapter 1. Joel chapter 1. It's a small three-chapter book. If you haven't been there before, uh, find uh, the book of Daniel. And then move to your right. You'll find Hosea. And right after Hosea, you'll find Joel. And uh, this is the third now uh, in the series of, of studies that, uh, that we're doing. We started uh, three weeks ago, and then uh, last week, well, actually two weeks ago, and then last week and was uh, the second part, and then this week is the third. As you're turning there, let me just make mention that uh, the importance of this book has to do with preparation for something called the Day of the Lord. The Day of the Lord is mentioned in the scriptures many times. And I had said that we're going to go through uh, a fuller understanding of that particular day, which is not a single day, by the way. It's, a, it, it's called the Day of the Lord, but uh, it extends for seven years. And it is the seven-year period that Daniel describes in Daniel chapter 9. Of uh, seven years that are left on the judgment that was placed upon Israel, in, in particular Judah, but uh, really all of Israel, seven years. That uh, after Messiah was cut off, of course when Jesus was uh, Crucified, and then of course he rose again. But from that time, uh, the seven years would not begin until certain things would happen. Uh, 2,000 uh, years later, we are looking more at the things that are happening in the world as, as being significant to the day of the Lord beginning. But before the day of the Lord happens, and this is something that we are going to see as well going through this short uh, pr prophetic book is that there is an event that happens right before which we call the rapture of the church. And it has to happen before the seven years of tribulation. A lot of people argue with that timing of the, of the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is mentioned in scripture a number of times. It's alluded to a number of times in the Old Testament as well as in the New. So it is, a, it, it is a, um, an event that is going to take place and those who will be affected by it, of course, will be the church. Jesus talked to his disciples about it in John chapter 14. In preparation for the cross, he's telling them, let not your heart be troubled, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. So the picture is he's coming again to receive believers in Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul will count on that particular statement of Jesus and build upon it in his uh, letter to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he, when he talks about uh, a, a time uh, when the trumpet of God is going to sound, uh, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then he says, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will ever be with the Lord, which coincides exactly with the things that Jesus himself said about coming for his followers, his disciples. So that's, that's the one event that does not need any other prophecies to happen before it takes place. Now, prophecy is being fulfilled every day in, uh, as we look for the coming of Jesus Christ. In, in the sense that, and it's a very general sense, but when you see the things that are happening in the world today, <clears throat> and... And then you, you begin to open uh, the scriptures, you begin to realize, wow, we're living in the times that Jesus described in Matthew 24, 
in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, where he spoke to his disciples before going to the cross again about uh, the latter days and the last times. And we are certainly more, uh, we're, we're certainly closer to the return of Jesus than, of course, the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or John were. Yet they were also waiting for Jesus to come. They were expecting him at any moment. And that is the reason why scripture has to be studied so seriously. We, we, we kind of talked a little bit about that in this past weekend where we were doing this prophecy update. And by the way, we're, we're, the next couple of weeks we're going to be uh, um, continuing on in focusing on the things that are happening in the world today that are, that are seen in scripture. Even, even certain events. Uh, take, for example, and I'll just mention this very quickly for those who may not have been here on, on, on the weekend, but uh, we talked about the Ezekiel 38 uh, war, the war of Gog and Magog. Every, every player in that particular war against Israel is already uh, uh, classified. We've already seen it. We, we know who they are. We know all the players, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and then all of the other states that are lying just north of Israel, each and every one. And then there's Libya and Ethiopia and Sudan, and all of those are mentioned in Scripture. So Scripture is being fulfilled in that sense as we're moving toward the coming of Jesus. And uh, so that's why the seriousness of it. So now we take this book of Joel and we realize that it began with the prophet mentioning a locust invasion an invasion of locusts that would have happened physically in the land because there have always been plagues of locusts in, in various uh, continents and various countries that, that have locusts that will go and, and actually at, at certain given times will go through the vegetation of a, of a, of a, of a country or a state or a, a continent even and uh, do the damage that, that they do. Uh, we, we talked about uh, the various levels of, uh, of locusts that would do this. And then the question was to Judah and the community that surrounded Jerusalem, have you ever seen anything like this before? And of course they hadn't. So therefore this, this locust invasion happened. And the prophet, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the leading and direction of, of God himself, begins to tell the people, well, be, you better be prepared for a, a, another invasion, but this time not of locusts, but of a real army. So the preparation is, listen, you need to stay serious and you need to stay right with God because this is inevitable if you continue to move in the direction you're moving uh, uh, spiritually. And the people were sliding away from God. So we know that, uh, we know that the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel, they had fallen uh, much further uh, before uh, the southern kingdom, but they were going to go into captivity with uh, Assyria, and the southern kingdom would eventually go into captivity by the Babylonians. So they would be invaded by armies, armies that they could not do anything about that would come and destroy everything just like those locusts did. So the prophecy itself then in a general sense is telling us we need to be ready. But the first thing is we need to be right with God. We need to get right with God or else we need to get back to being right with God. And somewhere along the line here, uh, in our study of Joel, and I may, I may re reference it. As a matter of fact, I think I'll reference it now. The fact of the matter is, in these last days, we're not going to see revivals like we've seen happen uh, in, in, in the past. But there will be a call for repentance in the church of Jesus Christ. We talk a lot about that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next couple of weeks on, on, on the weekend. We're going to talk about how far the church has gotten from God. Just like Israel got away 
from their God. So it is important, you know, that the call, when the call goes out, just like all the prophets, Hosea called it as a return unto the Lord. Repent and return to the things of, uh, that pertain to the God who loves you and, and, and uh, has, has uh, sought to rescue you. You've got to return. So that is, that's where we find ourselves here. And uh, he's called out to certain peoples, as I'm, I'm going to reference those now. Uh, he's called to certain groups to repent, but actually he calls out for them to mourn and to weep. You know, one, one of the problems in the world today, well, in the world of the church, as it were, is that we want easy believism say this prayer and you're going to go to heaven type thing. But let, let me ask you a question. Is it that easy? It's never that easy. It really isn't. Repentance requires a heart that is sorrowful for sin because sin is an offense to God. And the price was Jesus going to the cross, dying on the cross, shedding his blood for our forgiveness. That's, that's, that's quite a price. The Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, gave his life for us. So, we see then that this is, a, this is serious business. And all the prophets, the major prophets and the minor prophets, all of them, would have us to really be serious about our walk with God. So now, as I mentioned, he has called out for uh, the drunkards to weep and howl, the nation, for them to remember that what they saw in the locust invasion, they're going to see in a totally different way, but they're going to see it as it comes and destroys the, the nation itself as a people. With that in mind, we look at verses 8 through 13. Now, verse 13 we'll study next week, uh, but I'm going to read it anyway. It just kind of fits what we're talking about, but then we'll come back to it next week. But then he goes on to say, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. So once again, the prophet under the inspiration and leading of God is telling the people, you need to be weeping over these things. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourneth. For the corn is wasted, the corn is grain, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. And then he says, be ye ashamed, O ye husbandmen, the husbandmen being the farmers, as it were. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree languishes, languishes, saith. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of men gird yourselves and lament you priests howl you ministers of the altar come lie all night in sackcloth you ministers of my God for the meat offering and the drink offering is withholden from the house of your God so as I mentioned earlier, the central focus then of the first half of chapter 1 is the need for everyone, but especially the children of Israel and Judah. The need for everyone, but especially Israel, to pay close attention and serious attention to the message of the prophecy. This little prophecy, pay close attention to it, which has to do with, again, the day of the Lord. And in our last study, we looked at the day of the Lord being a time of great deception, in the world, but there will be a considerable amount of deception in the church, especially in these last days. And we have reference to it. We have, we've mentioned it many times. How people have gotten away from the Word of God, how they put the Word of God aside, you know, to, I don't know what else they could be doing if they put God's Word aside. They don't want to hear the truth. There are churches today believing and, and getting their people to believe that it's more important to be social justice warriors over many different topics rather than 
be right with God and lead others to the, to the saving knowledge of truth in Jesus Christ. And you would say, well, shouldn't all churches love Jesus? Well, they say they do. But what is, what is, what is the measure of our love for Christ? <coughs> when it comes down to it, the measure of our love for Christ is obedience. The measure of our love for Christ is obedience. Jesus said that there would be a time when people would say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done all of these things for you? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. Well, those are serious words. That's, the word, that's toward the end of chapter 7 of Matthew, if you want to read it. But, but it's, a, it's a chilling statement that Jesus makes. Depart from me, I never knew you. Yet they were claiming, well, but Lord, didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do that for you? That tells us that we need to be careful about what we do for the sake of Jesus Christ. So let's not forget that the religious and spiritual leaders of Israel were accused by the Lord of deceiving the people about peace. We saw it in the, in the, in the uh, uh, prophecies of Isaiah and in Jeremiah, primarily, and also in the, in the prophecy of Ezekiel. For example, in Isaiah 9, verse 16, God says, for the leaders of this people caused them to err, and they, are, and they that are led of them are destroyed. The leaders, and, and he's not talking about civic leaders, he's talking about religious leaders. He's talking about the priests. The ones who were to stand before God for the people. The ones that were to stand before the people with the word of God. The leaders of this people caused them to err. And then if you go to Jeremiah chapter 6 verses 13 and 14, notice this. <clears throat> it's telling the people, listen, we're going to have peace. There's going to be peace. The peace is going to come. and It doesn't matter what you do. You know, you're going to be okay. I'm okay. You're okay. Anybody remember that book back in the 60s or 70s? I'm okay. You're okay. No, you're not. We're, we're not okay. We're sinners. That's a big problem. For from the least of them, even unto the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, notice this, from the prophet, because there were a lot of false prophets in the time of the prophets. And from the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. They have healed also the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. In other words, they've kind of made people feel okay a little bit, you know, slightly okay by saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Everything's going to be okay. The Assyrians aren't going to destroy us. The Babylonians aren't going to come and destroy us. We're going to be okay. It's, it's like going and finding a hole to put, stick your head in, the, you know, in so you don't see what's happening all around you. It's, it's peace. It's going to be okay. Be the best you can be of yourself. Be the best you you can be. That's the message in a lot of churches today. Now don't worry about things that are going on. I mean, yeah, you need, to be a, you need to be concerned. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. By the way, it's not just shalom. If you remember, we used a word on Sunday called shalva. Shalva means prosperity and safety. And so in the whole sense of the word shalom is the understanding that there is prosperity and there's safety. And what we're getting here from the, from the, from the false prophets is telling the people when there's imminent danger coming, oh, listen, there's going to be peace. When there's no peace, everything's going to be okay. Just have a, you know, just, just give positive confessions. Just give positive confessions and you'll be okay. You ever heard that? Well, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, you know, we ought not to look at things from a positive and negative viewpoints. 
Some will, some will say, well, the reason why you're not really prospering is because you have, you're, you just, you're a very negative person. So you're the one that's at fault. Or else maybe you're a sinner. Really? How about if we be realistic? And know that we have been blessed by God, but we've also been called by God. Called by God to be light to the world and salt to the earth. That requires our lives to be right and to be lived right before the world. So rather than be positive or negative, let's be godly. Because that's what the Bible teaches. That we are called to be godly. Jeremiah 8 verses 10 and 11 says, Therefore will I give their wives unto others and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For everyone from the least even to the greatest is given to covetousness. God knows the direction that people's minds are going when, when, the, when the leadership all of a sudden focuses on self and doing the things that they want to do so that they benefit from the people. Does that sound familiar? That's happening today. Notice. For everyone from the least even unto the greatest is given to covetousness. From the prophet even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. Why? Because they're only concerned about themselves. And nowadays, some guys are only concerned about get, you know, getting enough money from the people so they can, they can buy a $57 million jet so they can go from place to place and, and brag about the fact that they've got a $57 million jet. And say that they use it for ministry. Wow. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying peace. Peace when there's no peace. Have we heard that before? Yeah. This is a constant. (laughs) It's not like a broken record. Oh, by the way, some of you are saying, what's a record? Okay. (laughs) Jeremiah 23 verses 1 and 2 says, Woe be unto the pastors. Notice. Woe be unto the pastors, the shepherds that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. Does that sound serious to you? It sounds serious to me. And being a pastor, it sounds real serious. And then there's a statement in Ezekiel chapter 13, verse 10. It says, because even because they have seduced my people, saying peace, and there was no peace. Shalom, shalva, prosperity, safety, and there was no peace. Why was there no peace? Because there was wickedness. There was idolatry. There was constant sin. And one built up a wall, and lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. They were building a wall, but they weren't building it very good. They were just slapping things up. Untempered mortar wouldn't keep a building together or a wall together. Verse 16 of the same chapter. To wit, the prophets of Israel, which prophesy concerning Jerusalem, and which see visions of peace for her, and there is no peace, saith the Lord God. Have you ever heard? I've heard a lot of people. I, I try to listen to as much as I can of what's going on in, in, the, in the church. I was going to say in the world. Well, the world's in the church now in many cases. And you hear people say, oh, we have visions, visions of this happening and that happening. How about look at what the Word of God says? Because that vision has already been given. And so the prophet Joel issued a strong charge. First of all, to the leaders and the citizens. Back in verse 2, he said, hear and listen. Hear and listen. Pay attention. The severity of the approaching catastrophe. And and, uh, don't forget that I mentioned 
uh, either last week or the week before, but I mentioned to you that uh, there was uh, an immediate judgment coming, like the locusts, an immediate judgment. Then there would, there would be an imminent judgment. That would be the judgment that would actually befall Israel uh, after the time of, uh, uh, of Jesus. The Romans in AD 70 that destroyed Jerusalem and then scattered all the Jews until they began to regather uh, before 1948 and then 1948 they became a nation again, which is prophetic. And then there would be an ultimate judgment all in the same vein as Joel was giving to, the, to the, the people of his time. So the severity of the approaching catastrophe would be unequaled. <clears throat> and no one could recall when the nation had been so devastated as the unprecedented destruction caused by the locusts. So what the people were to do, they were to share, declare, and prepare the succeeding generations. You look there at verse 3, it says, tell your children of it. Let your children tell their children, their children another generation. Share, declare, prepare. That really should be happening again today in the church. If the church believes in the word of God and sees it as something that is relevant for the day because it is telling us that these things are already happening in our day and time. They were going to be the ones experiencing the, magnif uh, the magnified and multiplied devastations to come. The generations that were to follow. Listen, this is going to happen if you do not repent. If you do not, as a whole, come back to your God. And then came the charge to the drunkards that I mentioned in verse 5. The self-indulgent pleasure seekers who needed to wake up and weep for the misusing of the fruitful resources that the Lord had so graciously given them. Weep over these things. Nowadays, people aren't weeping over sin. They're glorifying sin. Sin is being glorified in the church. Now another group is given the serious and forceful prophetic charge of, of uh, Joel. More specifically, the young and the old. Verse, verse 8, where we started reading earlier. Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth. Now, the, the picture that's being given here, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. You have a, a, a woman the, the word that's used is, is for a virgin, but it's also used for a bride. A bride that's dressed for a wedding. The only problem is she's dressed in sackcloth. And sackcloth is the symbol of mourning because of death. So the prophet, really it's the Lord through the prophet, is saying, you need to weep and mourn like a virgin who is girded with sackcloth, wearing the garment of mourning, wearing the garment of, of, of weeping and of grief for the husband of her youth. The husband that she was going to marry is dead. That's the picture. And it's a sad picture, isn't it? And then immediately in verse 9, it says, The meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The fact that they're not able to do their duties, their obligations, their work in the temple. Everything is cut off. And then in verse 10, it says, the field is wasted, the land mourneth. Even the land itself mourns, cries out to God. 
For the corn is wasted, the grain is wasted. We hate to see waste, don't we? We should anyway. We hate to see waste of any kind. You know, sometimes we'll turn on the news and some neighborhood here in El Paso, you know, the a water main breaks and there's water scattered all over the place and we say, wow, what a waste, all that water. Of course, you know, we'll get water back, but, you know, the way things are nowadays, it's not always easy. Or waste of food, you know, grain silos. or uh, You hear reports of, of uh, certain uh, batches of food that are... Uh, tainted with some kind of Ebola or, or whatever. E. coli, I should say. Not Ebola, that's worse. E. coli. But uh, in any event, we would say, wow, people have to recall, they have to you know, throw it away, burn it all up, it's, it's, it's waste. So can you imagine a whole nation wasting of their whole grain? The new wine dried up. The oil was also, it languished. And the Lord, through the prophet Joel, gives a, a powerful illustration in, in the charge to mourn like a virgin bride over the loss of her, of her uh, betrothed husband. And again, we all know that a wedding should be a time for joy and a time for rejoicing. But no more. Not in the land of Judah. The locust has snatched away all the growth of the land and caused economic devastation. The very survival of the people was threatened. It wasn't an opportune time to begin a family since people were fighting just to survive. There would be no food. There would be no prospect of, or hope for a job so that uh, a young married couple could survive and support themselves. But that wasn't the worst of it the people's worship would be greatly impacted. The opportunity to worship using the required animal sacrifices, the grain offerings, the drink offerings, was, it was gone. It was going to be gone. The truly faithful worshipers of the Lord would suffer greatly with grief and sorrow, all because of the inability to worship the Lord as instructed. And then in verse 10, we see the land mourning because the fields have been wasted. The grain, the wine, the oil, all the produce and harvest were gone. The survival of the young and old was, was threatened. If the locusts could do that, how much more an invading army? What grief should Judah have expressed? at the thought of her separation from the Lord, who was betrothed to her as a faithful husband in her early days. What grief should they have been expressing? You can go to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. It says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when thou wentest after me in the wilderness in a land that was not sown. There was a time when Israel cried out to God. They went to God. They loved God. And they understood that God was their husband. That as a people, God was the one who was going to watch over them, provide for them, keep them, guard them, protect them. That was the main responsibility of a husband. Nowadays you say that and oh, may you be accused of sexism and all kinds of other things. Isn't that crazy? Well, then you have husband and husband or wife and wife. Where'd that come from? Wow. Ezekiel 16 verse 8 says, Now when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold... Thy time was the time of love, and I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee. This is God speaking to Israel. I swear unto thee, and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and thou becamest mine. The language of a husband covering, protecting, watching over his bride. This is where we get the picture of Jesus and his bride. 
the church. Hosea chapter 2 verse 7, <clears throat> and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. Now remember the main theme of Hosea. A nation that was given over to idolatry and committing spiritual adultery because they had left their God who was their husband. And Hosea was commanded by God to marry a prostitute who would then show the people in his own life the illustration as, as an object lesson to the nation of Israel of what they were doing to their husband who was God. And she shall seek them but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband. She'll seek out her lovers, but she says, no, you know what? I'm going to go back. For then was it better with me than now. Wouldn't it always be better with God? And then a strong charge was made to the farmers and the vine dressers. A charge was given to them in verse 11. Be, be ye ashamed, O you husbandmen. Be ashamed. Howl, O ye vine dressers, for the, the weed and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. That pertained to the, the farmers. Verse 12 pertained to the, uh, <coughs> the vine dressers. The vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes. The palm tre uh, pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field are withered. Because joy, here's the reason, look at, look at this reason. Because joy is withered away from the sons of men. Joy is withered away. Let me just say that in spite of all of the struggles and trials that you've had today, and I hope that I'm speaking for you as well as for me, but in spite of all of the struggles and trials that you may have had coming in here with the freedom to lift up our voices and our hearts and our hands unto the Lord and to say, God, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. We came here because we're filled with joy because of what you've done through your son, Jesus Christ. That's joy. No matter what we face today, that's joy. And yet, joy can be withered away Because simply because of sin. Simply because a people have turned from their God. And I want you to notice again the admonition there in verse 11. Be ye ashamed. Be ashamed. They, they would, in other words, they would have the shame of disappointment and despair due to the failure of the wheat and the barley harvests. The vine dressers would despair because the vineyards were withered and completely dried up by the drought. The list given in verse 12, by the way, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree. All of these were trees that, that provided food, and, but it also provided something else. It provided beauty for the eye. There's something beautiful about a grove of, of, of fruit trees. There's something that God gives that says, I love you so much that I've given you something that you can appreciate not just in your mouth, but with your eyes. And now they, they, they were all withered. They were all either wilted, withered, and, and shriveled up or completely stripped of its beauty and covering. That's what a plague like the locusts do. That's what sin does when it comes in wholeheartedly to destroy. Because who pushes sin but the enemy of our souls? And then all the beauty of things that God has done just seems to be lost somewhere and there's no grasping 
of what is good and right and holy and pure. Because those are the things that are pure. Those are the things that, that are, are rich. Those are the things that are beautiful. Those are the things that bring joy. Joy, we're told, was withered away from the sons of men. In other words, the people's joy faded away. And when joy fades away, it leaves you discouraged. And it leaves you without hope. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have hope, don't we? Because our hope is Jesus himself. Paul calls him the blessed hope. Jesus is the blessed hope. Ah. Boy, I hate to keep driving this point about hope. Because I always upset my brothers and sisters who love the cowboys. <laughs> I, I know. I, I, I do it. I could use another team, but I, you know. <laughs> it's just more fun this way. <laughs> but we, we're hoping, you know, this past week, we were hoping, right? We're hoping. And it didn't, you know, didn't come to fruition. <sighs> next year, next year. All right, we'll use the Raiders this time. Any Raiders fans here? No, I'm nobody. Okay, well, I'm not insulting anybody. But, that's, but see, that's the thing. You know, we, we have, the world has a hope. If it doesn't happen, well, your hopes are kind of dashed, and then maybe later on. But with Jesus, we have a hope that never fades and a hope that never fails. Because whatever he has said, he's going to do. So that is why we have a blessed hope in Christ because we know that when he said, I'm coming again, guess what he's going to do? He's going to come again. There's no way to miss out on that. Jesus is very good about keeping his word. And we ought to rejoice over that. We try sometimes ourselves to keep our word, but you know, sometimes we fail. But Jesus never fails. So, in summary now, uh, the reference to the leaders, the growers, the youth, the old, all had connections here in this little section that we've studied. All have connections with their religious activities. But what were they for them at that point? What were they for them? Their religious activities, what were they? Consider religious or spiritual activities today. Let's just consider that. For many people, they're all action and with little or no relationship. All action, no relationship. There's activity. Now, it's not everybody. I'm not, I'm not trying to draw generalization here. But, but, it, but it is something that we need to kind of consider that there can be many people who are just active, 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 doing things, going to church. And the, the simplest activity is just going to church. And then when it's over, then you go off and do your own thing for the rest of the week. So that's action, but no relationship. Little or no relationship, I said earlier. And I suppose I say that facetiously when you, when you think, what's a little relationship? You know, our, our father is not just a little bit of a father. He's, he's completely father. He's completely our God. So that's the kind of relationship we need to have with God, which is a complete one. And, and we're not competing to see who has a better relationship with, with father. It's not about competing with one another. What it is is about with all of our hearts showing that we love our God with everything that's within us. I mean, let's not forget that we're, we're supposed to have the Lord Jesus' DNA. We're covered with his blood. It's Jesus' DNA. If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is who we are now. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become 
knew. So we not only, we not only have relationship, in, in other words, we're the sons and daughters of God through Jesus Christ, we also are to have fellowship. Let's never forget that. We are to have a relationship with our God. He is our Father. We are His children. We are to have fellowship with Him because we have fellowship one with another and with Him. Fellowship is koinonia. Fellowship is communion. And I'm not talking about a little piece of bread and a little cup of, of, of juice. Communion. Communion. Communing together in the love of Jesus. Enjoying the presence of Christ. Loving the word of God. Loving it as food to our minds and to our hearts and to our spirits. <coughs> Only thing is now, getting back to action, action can only be purely ritual. Well, I should say can only be, but action can be purely ritual. For some people, it's just the action. I go to church every Sunday. Well, that's nice. But going to church doesn't make you a believer. There are still those people who go to church. Uh, uh, they think that's why they're supposed to, uh, that, that's what they're supposed to do to get on God's good side. A lot of people go to church thinking, by, by my, my coming, I'm, I'm, I'm gaining points, you know. You get, on, you get on some uh, club uh, thing, you know, with, with some uh, store, you know, and you get points for buying stuff. And then, and, you know, the points build up, and then later on, you know, you have 10 billion trillion points, and then you can buy a candy bar with it, you know. <laughs> it takes that many to get one little candy bar. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah. Does anybody work for CVS Pharmacy here? Anybody? I don't want to be insulting or anything. <laughs> but man, oh man, you know, the prices are a little steep, just a little bit, you know. And then they give you this, this, this five, maybe six, seven foot receipt with all these, with, with all these coupons that you'll never use, you know. And you'll get these female products. Well, no, that's not for me. I mean, you know, it's a, like, and, and then there's one little one for two, you know, two bucks. And, and you know when it's due? Yesterday. Okay, well, not yesterday, but maybe tomorrow. So, so you got this, you know, this, this thing where, you know, you're in this club and then, no, 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 no. Stop thinking that you come to church because you, you, you're going to get on God's good side and you're gaining points for heaven. That's wrong. That's wrong. We're here because we love Jesus Christ. We're here because we love the Lord and we want to worship Him. I want to worship the Lord every time I'm with God's people. And it, worship is not just singing. It's not about just singing. <clears throat> I, I, I could hardly carry a tune tonight, but I mean, it's, 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 I don't care about me. I care about my heart expressing my love for Jesus Christ. And if I was the only one in this place, I'd still do it. Because that's how I want to live my life. Not as if somebody, I, I've got to have a crowd for me to really worship the Lord. No. It's not about points. None of us are here by fours. Well, some kids will say, well, I'll know about it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. None of us are here by force or under some compulsion or obligation. Peter had a, you know, Peter had a great understanding of this when he wrote to the church in, in 1 Peter 5. Because what he said, and, and this is coming from the heart of a person who was a, you know, he was a shepherd. And he was an apostle. An apostle 
ordained by the Lord himself, by Jesus himself. So here was one who, if he had wanted to, he would have said, you know, you need to look to me, you know. One of these days I'm going to be your first pope. Well, because, you know, the Catholic Church has named him as as the, 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 the first pope. So he could have said, you know, I, I, I should get some uh, attention here. But this is what Peter said. He said, the elders which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder. Now what you need to understand about that phrase is that he's saying, I'm, I'm with you eye to eye. I'm not looking down at you. We are called together to oversee the church as elders as leaders in the church not to look down upon anyone but to look everyone in the eye the, the elders which are among you I exhort who I am also an elder and a witness <coughs> of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed I've seen Jesus in his glory He said, feed the flock. Feed the flock of God, which is among you. Taking the oversight thereof. Not by constraint. Don't do it because you're forced to do it. But willingly. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because you know that that's the calling that God has given to you and that is then what you are to do with the calling he's given you. Feed the flock. Feed them. Tend to them. Guard them. Guide them. Lead them. Love them. And then he says, not for filthy lucre. Not for money. Not for what you can get out of it. Not for what you can gain from it. But of ready mind. Neither as being lords over God's heritage. You're not to be lords in the sense of having some status that's better than everybody else. Because the fact of the matter is there's only one Lord. And his name is Yeshua, Jesus. Only one Lord. Be in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, who is Jesus, you shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You want something then just be faithful in the calling that you've been given and do it willingly. And that becomes, that becomes the example to the church that what we do in the church, no matter where we are in our relationship to, and fellowship with Jesus Christ, no matter who we are, we can always worship the Lord with all of our hearts. In his very last letter to his son in the faith, the Apostle Paul would write these words in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 8. He said, I charge thee, therefore, before God. <coughs> Notice this charge. Remember, Joel was charging the, 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 the people in, in, uh, uh, in Judah to, to weep because of what was coming, the impending judgments that were coming. But when Timothy, or when Paul charges his son in the faith, Timothy, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, the quick being the living. Preach the word, he said. Preach the word. Be instant. In season and out of season. Be instant. In other words, be ready. At any given moment, be ready to preach the word of God. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. 
Now, I know people that like to rebuke people. And they like to exhort people. And they like to reprove them. But they forget that we're supposed to do that with long-suffering and doctrine. That we're supposed to reprove with patience and with the Word of God. Not as if it comes from us as some judge who looks down. Again, remember Peter didn't say, I look down on you. I look eye to eye with you. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. This sounds like the 21st century. This sounds like the church of today. Not enduring sound doctrine. After their own lusts, heaping to themselves teachers having itching ears. Their own lusts being whatever uh, the Bible says is wrong can't be all that bad. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch. Notice that word watch. Keep an eye on. Be serious about what you're looking at. Watch thou in all things. Endure afflictions. Because their afflictions are going to come. Just because you're going through trials doesn't mean that there's something wrong with your faith. It just means that when you endure them, you're doing the work that God has called you to do. God will get you through the struggles. God will get you through the trials. He said, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Every trial that we've ever gone through, if, we, if we've really been serious about it, every trial we've gone through, God has gotten us through to teach us something. To teach us the very thing that he said he would do, and that is, I'll never leave you. In the midst of the trials, I sense the Lord more than just on a daily basis of just, you know, going from place to place and doing things. And yet I sense that, that he's there always because he never lies. He says, I'll be with you. And then he says, do the work of an evangelist. Tell people about the Lord. Make full proof of thy ministry. If, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, each and every one of us has a ministry, whatever it may be. It could be a very simple one, but if you have a simple ministry, then make full proof of that simple ministry. For I'm now ready to be offered in the time of my departure is at hand. You know what he's saying to Timothy? He says, I'm, 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 I'm about ready to die. They're going to cut my head off. And as soon as that executioner's blade cuts through the neck of the Apostle Paul, at that very moment, he's in the presence of his wonderful Lord and Savior. To live is Christ, he said, and to die is gain. I have fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Folks, the Lord Jesus hasn't appeared yet, but he's going to. Can we love his appearing today? Which means can I just love the fact that he has promised and I'm looking for him, I'm waiting for him, I'm doing exactly what he says when he says, keep looking up and lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. Going to happen soon. We're living in a day and time when God is, is calling many people to repentance and many of those attend churches regularly, if not religiously, but whose hearts are far from the Lord that they profess to follow. Isaiah 29 verse 13 says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. You know that the Lord Jesus himself would use that very passage of Isaiah uh, to admonish the Pharisees and the scribes who were criticizing the disciples for eating bread with unwashed hands. Mark chapter, Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. They said, why do you let your, you know, they, they, they said, why do, you, why do you let your disciples eat, uh, you know, bread with, with unwashed hands? Look at the, he answered and he said unto them, 
Well has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honoreth me with their lips, but their hearts, or their heart is far from me. Howbeit in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What he's saying to them is, when did my father tell you, or when did I tell you, that you've got to wash your hands? For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men as the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. And he said unto them, full well you reject the commandment of God. He knew their hearts. And you could wash every cup, you could wash every finger, you could wash every toe before you eat a meal. And the Lord still knows where your heart is with him. That you may keep your own tradition he nailed them with that. They, as many today, were way beyond fellowship with God as the people in Joel's time. In fact, they had forgotten what fellowship with the Lord meant. The joy they once had was gone. It was withered away. It had dried up from the loss of communication with the God who desired fellowship and communion with them. That despair was far deeper than the devastation that was left by the locusts. The people were spiritually dry and barren because the loss of joy leads a person to become self-centered and self-focused. God becomes a secondary object. Others no longer have a special place for they mean little to nothing to the selfish. But I want you to consider something. Consider the, word, the letters to the word joy in this statement. Start with Jesus. I gotta look to see. Oh, there it is. Notice the J is bigger than the other letters. Well, thicker. Start with Jesus. And then the next word is others. And then after others, then consider you. I don't know about you, but I did this. I took the letters to joy, and I tried to make words out of setting them in different positions. O-J-Y, don't work. Y-O-J, doesn't work. Y-J-O, doesn't work. But J-O-Y works rather well. Our life has to be committed to Jesus first. If we want joy, we got to serve Jesus first. And then we need to consider the needs of others second. The book of Philippians tells us and teaches us that. And when that's all said and done, then you can consider yourself. God never says that we're not to consider ourselves. The problem is we consider ourselves too much and others not enough and sometimes very rarely with Jesus. In Nehemiah 8 verses 9 and 10 it says in Nehemiah which is the Tirshatha which means he's the governor at that time and Ezra the priest of the scribe and the Levites that taught the people said unto all the people this day is holy unto the Lord your God. Now remember they had come back from captivity and they were given the opportunity to build the temple once again in Jerusalem, but there was no wall. That was in the time of Ezra. Then in the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah sent back uh, to build the wall around the city of Jerusalem. Yes, they could build a wall because God told them to. And so they did in 51 days. And now they're at the temple with a wall around them and they're hearing the word of God for the first time and for some of them ever. And what did they do? They wept. They heard God's word and they wept. So they're being told here, this day is holy unto the Lord, uh, your God. Mourn not, nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said unto them, go your way, eat the fat. Oh, I like that part. 
Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions unto them from whom nothing is prepared for this day is holy unto the Lord, neither be ye sorry. And notice this, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so Paul in Philippians 4 verses 4 through 7 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Rejoice always in the Lord. Let, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. He says the Lord can be here at any moment. He's at hand. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, yes, the shalom, the shalom of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ or through Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. Come to understand the importance of joy because when things are left to self, joy withers. Then all you have is sorrow. So as Joel commanded them, weep. What you have seen in the devastation of the locust. Always happens at the right time. Right when I'm about to say something. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, you got the picture. Be full of the joy of the Lord. Because that's our strength. And then keep looking up, because Jesus is coming. Amen?